Tonight's talk is on self-consciousness. Uh, <clears throat> in life, we start out the process of regulating our behavior, uh, gaining self-control. The first way we do it is by the connection that a child or an infant makes with the mother visually. Uh, it's a, a largely uh, exchange of glances, recognition of uh, and movement uh, gestures. It's not based on language because for the first two and a half years, largely, the, uh, the regulation and the connection and attachment that's established between an infant and its parents happens largely outside of language. There comes a time, though, around two and a half years, where the infant begins to use more and more words, more and more language, and the parent, the caretaker, starts to regulate the child's behavior largely through instructions. In essence, don't run in the hall, don't eat the cookies yet, uh, don't uh, run into the middle of the street, etc. Another process that comes into play is also mimicry. Uh, as we grow older, we develop the ability to observe other people uh, mimic their behaviors and copy them. And that's another important tool that we use to uh, develop behaviors. But probably for human beings, the most dominant form of self-regulation we use is the constant stream of language playing out in our minds, narrating our lives. And um, when that uh, stream of words about ourselves becomes uh, largely engaged in worrying about how others will perceive us, how we compare with others, speculation about what's going to happen to me in the future, uh, the Buddha called that papancha, and it means proliferation, but we call it now self-consciousness. Uh, I'd like to draw a distinction between being self-conscious and being self-aware. Uh, self-conscious, for this discussion, uh, means the capability of the human mind to be concerned about what other people think about us, how we compare with everyone else in the world, whether we're good at what we do, uh, how we stand up. So it's, in essence, a very uh, socially concerned kind of consciousness. Self-awareness is simply awareness of, at any given moment, if how the breath is, how the body is, how if our minds are jumpy or not. And so self-awareness doesn't really concern itself with how other people perceive us. It's simply an awareness of what's going on internally. But, and for the practices of Buddhist spiritual practice, practice, or most spiritual practice, there's nothing wrong with self-awareness, being aware how your body is, how your breath is, whether your mind's jumpy or not, what kind of thoughts you have. That kind of awareness is very suitable. But most of us, tend to be far more attracted to self-consciousness. Um, it's a 
tool that we rely on to keep ourselves within bounds, to try to act in a way that will get uh, love and approval and acceptance. It's um, The Buddha called it Papancha because Papancha means times ten. And the observation was that you don't just think a self-conscious thought once. It immediately turns into ten or twenty or thirty kind of constant bombardment. It's a proliferating kind of thought. Now, the advantages of self-consciousness is simply that it's uh, a fast way to learn a lot of rules. But in most of our lives, the uh, our habits, our routines, our uh, emotions, and our ability to mimic others uh, would suffice in surviving. But we tend to fixate more on making sense of our lives, giving ourselves direction, trying to control our uh, troublesome habits and behaviors. We tend to exclusively rely on self-consciousness, telling ourselves, ooh, why did I do this? What's the matter with me? Why didn't I doing better, why does everybody else seem to be ahead of me, or these specific people that I'm using. Um, there was a fascinating study at Cornell uh, by a guy named, a psychologist named Gilovich, and a bunch of other psychologists, and they determined that using some really clever uh, uh, studies, they determined that self-consciousness creates what's called the spotlight effect. The spotlight effect is really, really important to know. If you don't learn anything else but this tonight, uh, this is worth keeping in mind. Uh, what they did in this study is they gave Cornell students a t-shirt that the students found humiliating to wear. It was a t-shirt with Barry Manilow on the front, <laughs> which, you know, I mean, I wouldn't give a shit. I, I mean, but then that's the nice thing about growing older. You don't give a shit. You know, you just wear it, whatever the fuck. I don't care. Yeah, I wear a Celine Dion t-shirt. I could care the fuck. But for the Cornell students, this was traumatic stuff. Uh, one of the other things they had them do was either trip or make a loud sound as they entered the classroom. And so uh, the study, after the class, what they would do is they would ask the student how many people they were convinced noticed them wearing the t-shirt, and B, whether their views of the people who were observing them wearing the t-shirt, whether the views were positive or negative. In other words, the two questions they asked were, how many people do you think observed you, and were those observations negative or positive? Well, guess what? It turns, and then they asked the rest of the, they did a survey with the rest of the people in the class trying to figure out how many of them actually noticed the person wearing the t-shirt. Well, guess what? It turns out that people routinely, at the very least, guessed twice as many people noticed them than actually did, and always assumed that the verdicts were negative, when in fact the verdicts were almost split 
in terms of positive, negative, couldn't give a fuck. Yeah. <laughs> so every study determines that in our minds we are twice as important, twice as visible, and twice as likely to be negatively evaluated by other people. That is the spotlight we live in. In other words, we all feel we're on a stage, and we all feel that we've got a spotlight on us. The more we're self-conscious, the more we're in our thoughts about ourselves, the more we feel that there's a spotlight on us, and that spotlight makes us twice as visible than we actually are, and it makes us look much worse than we actually appear. So this is really, really important to understand because this spotlight effect, it has some serious repercussions. When we're very young, we have available to us what's known as self-soothing strategies. These are the things that help you quiet and calm yourself when you're agitated. Self-soothing strategies can be anything from singing to playing an instrument to dancing to being creative, drawing. But guess what happens when we become more and more self-conscious in our lives? We abandon the very tools that help us calm and quiet the mind. So because we become self-conscious, sometime generally in the socializing period of around third to fifth grade, it, we, it really starts to develop, and then by high school, <laughs> forget about it. So um, what happens, though, is the self-conscious worrying about how we're perceived by others makes us abandon our self-soothing strategies. And when we do that, we set ourselves up for addictive strategies. The addictive strategies are the ones that help calm or um, help uh, numb the mind in the place of self-soothing strategies. Normally, a good idea when we're worried or downbeat or frightened or financially scared or whatever we're going through, a self-soothing strategy, going to a place where the sensations are, are relaxing, like by a water, having a cup of tea, taking a bath, those kinds of things, finding a friend, those kind of self-soothing uh, uh, self strategies are good, but instead, when we deprive ourselves of those techniques because we're concerned how we'll appear to others when we sing, dance, be creative, draw, play an instrument, instead, what we're more likely to do to quiet the mind is consume drugs or alcohol or shop or turn on a television or consume food or go on Facebook in search of cheap lights. And um, so the more self-conscious we are, the more we abandon the very tools that help us soothe the mind, and the more we become prone to addictive strategies in their place. Now, that's not all. Uh, studies show that self, the more self-conscious we are, the more we are caught up in uh, self-cognition, the more likely we are to have cognitive dissonance. And basically that boils down to a couple of different tendencies. One, 
to perceive ourselves as more alone in the world in our experience than we actually are. The more self-conscious we are, the more we tend to believe that the events of our lives are unique, that our emotions are unique, that our feelings are unique, that what we're going through other people can't understand. And the more unique we feel, the less likely we are to reach out, connect, share, make deep connections with others that help us relieve our sadness, loneliness, fears, frustrations. So that's one form of cognitive dissonance. We wind up feeling much more alone than we actually are. Another is black and white thinking. Black and white thinking is basically the observation that when we do something, we are either an idiot or a genius. <laughs> Nothing in between. We draw something, we overcome that, that uh, doubt, that self-consciousness. We actually draw something, and rather than just feel a sense of completion, we immediately pronounce it a piece of shit or the greatest work of art ever. It's the result of the isolating and the spotlight effect that is very separating of self-consciousness. So um, I could go on and on, but um, I think uh, you know by now, you're adults, you know by now that you probably have found yourself at different points in your life, situations in your life. Generally, the situations where we feel the most vulnerable is where we're most likely to be self-conscious. In a new environment, a new job, a social situation where we don't know a lot of people, any situation where the fear mechanism, the, um, the amygdala starts firing, we're more likely to be self-conscious because self-conscious is associated with survival. We tend to believe that it helps us uh, survive. We tend to rely on it because we believe the more self-conscious we are, the less likely we are to act in a socially awkward way that will get ourselves, um, in, us, in essence, shunned or shamed or rejected by others. So it, we tend to rely upon it. Then one of the strategies people use to get over their self-consciousness is and the Buddha directly addressed this uh, in, the, in a sutta called the water snake. He said people um, who are frustrated with the aloneness and isolation of their stories that they've created tend to then try to run in the exact opposite direction where they create this idea of a universal cosmic self, a kind of life force that's in everything, a kind of... Um, a kind of thing that makes everybody the same and flattens us out and makes us all, you know, uh, cut from the same mold. And basically it's a desire to escape the results of self-consciousness. The problem is, as nice an idea as universal, you know, there being this idea of this uh, transcendent self that is completely unites us all, the Buddha says it doesn't really exist. And it creates another form of, of, um, of suffering. Because the more we believe that we're all the same, we tend to, A, stop seeing how we can change our behavior to have less stress and suffering in our lives. The less focused we are on our acts actions and behaviors, 
the less also we're likely to have a good balance in our life between taking care of ourselves and being compassionate with others. People who uh, feel uh, this desire to escape any self-awareness, any sense of having an identity, and trying to instead believe that there's a sort of a cosmic underpinning universal identity, tend to find themselves caught up in the suffering of everyone around them and don't take care of themselves, don't have balance in their lives. Um, there's a long, it's a long sutta, and the Buddha discusses all the drawbacks. So, but the question might be, okay, what is the solution? What is the way we can deal with self-consciousness in uh, a strategic way? And luckily, there are a number of really wonderful Buddhist techniques available. The one that's the most prominent is the Buddha talked about creating um, what I'll call, for lack of, there's not an exact translation of it, but a strategic identity for ourselves. Rather than allowing the mind's negativity bias, and when we're self-conscious, we tend to collect all of the negative experiences in our life. That's the nature of the mind. It looks for the negative at a ratio of about five to one. This is the amygdala is set up that way to remember negative, threatening, bad experiences over positive experiences. So when you create the story of your life and narrate your life in your mind, you are far more likely to remember all the abandonments, the times you've done something that resulted in a sense of embarrassment, the things you've done where you, you felt ashamed of, or the times you felt rejected. That's just the way the mind works, because those kind of thoughts tend to make us feel safer, believe it or not. The more we're aware of all the threats around us and the threatening experiences, for the brain tends to feel it has a greater chance of surviving. Obviously, if we were optimistic and lived in optimistic minds, the brain would feel less secure. It tends to feel more protected the more negative the memories it recalls. So if you just allow your natural tendency to tell the story of who you are, your capabilities, uh, you will fall victim to the spotlight effect and you will also fall victim to negativity bias. We like to think that there are narcissists out there that this doesn't apply to, but actually narcissists are performers and they tell stories about how great they are to others, but deep down they too fall victim to the exact same spotlight and negativity biases as everybody else does. So the Buddha talked about instead purposely creating a story about ourselves that is a goal-seeking, not something that's a complete fantasy. I don't, uh, and, and it's not a story that's based on materialistic achievement. So if you're thinking about, you know, becoming a rock star or movie star or, you know, something like that in your mind might be a good solution to this uh, process, that's not really what the Buddha's talking about. Um, Instead, he talks, I'll actually read you an actual quote, because sometimes that's helpful. The Buddha says, yourself that you create provides a foundation 
It provides you with a goal that nothing else can. We should establish ourselves in that which is pro proper, protecting ourselves by acting harmlessly to ourselves and others. Harmful people injure themselves like vines injure the trees that they're wrapped around. Never neglect your welfare and peace of mind for the sake of another, nor harm another for the sake of yourself. In other words, what the Buddha is calling for is creating a, a kind of identity that is goal-seeking, that sets a, a really positive view of what we can accomplish in our lives in relationship with other people and in our own lives in terms of happiness and peace of mind. It's funny because um, we all, a lot of us love movies made by Hollywood where, uh, and in those Hollywood films, the ending is always positive. We love, these, we love movies based on a real story where, you know, the hero overcomes, you know, uh, untold, you know, obstacles and triumphs against all odds. Aaron Brockovich, who doesn't like that movie? Or, you know, a film where the person handicapped running in the race comes from last place and against all odds triumphs. We love that story. And yet, in our own lives, we repeat in our minds stories, of, ah, I can't do that, I went to yoga once, forget about it. My hip, I couldn't move for an hour afterwards. <laughs> That's right, you think in the same... <laughs> I, uh, uh, I'm by, by, I come from, my mom's family is Jewish, and, and we would do this voice around the dinner table. So that's what I do. When I go into a voice, it turns into this voice. <laughs> and I'm like, what the fuck is he? What, what the fuck is that voice? That's what it's from. So, um, so we all have this negative ideation, but we love watching stories of, you know, positive outcomes. And basically what we're what we can do is create a sense of self that's strategic. We can use this, you know, I'm someone who cares about people. I'm someone who likes being of service. I'm someone who likes being generous. I'm someone who likes uh, showing up for people when they need help. I'm like, I'm someone who likes to connect with people who um, are going through a hard time. If we create this story, the sense of self, it can, it can actually direct us in a very positive, uh, intentional direction that can go a long way to overcome the self-conscious stories that we have. When we start out, the, the thing that most changes human emotional states is not the, you know, uh, suddenly learning how to play the guitar or the anything material, it's simply human beings are pack animals. When we set stories and intentions that connect us with others in a positive way, 
that is the fastest way to undo self-conscious ideations and low self-esteem. But let's talk about some of the other tools. Uh, a, a couple of them, uh, quite a number I've learned from monks that I, and nuns that I've studied with over the years. So um, one of my favorite is um, the so what practice. <coughs> The so what practice is a very valuable one. I actually actively encourage it. It can be done with a journal, or it can be done without a journal. And this is courtesy of Ajahn Amara, who I uh, had the uh, honor to attend a retreat with, and he's a now very, very important Buddhist monk in England. But uh, he sort of said, whenever there's a fear we have, or an ongoing concern in our head, ask ourselves, so what? I'll give you an example. So, we might be at a dance, God forbid, but we're at a dance. I actually like to dance. I, I'm not self-conscious about dancing. I love to dance. But suppose we're at a dance and we don't like the dance, and um, so there's a thought, maybe I should dance, but then there's another thought that goes, ah, you know, uh, I'll look foolish. And then the question is, so what? So we say, well, if I look foolish, people will look at me, they won't like me, they'll think, you know, who is this character? So what? Well, if people look at me and they think I look foolish and they, they, they won't want to be around me, they won't want to talk to me, they'll abandon me. So what? Well, then I won't have any friends. I'll wind up all alone. You do three so what's and see where the self-conscious mind takes you. It just took me from being frightened of or concerned about dancing to feeling I'll wind up alone in the world <laughs> with no friends <laughs> simply because I was about to dance. <laughs> That's the beauty of so what. You just do three so what's I'll give you another example. I was at this job. This is a true story. I was at this job. I was uh, early on in recovery. Well, you know, uh, alcoholic, drug addict. Twenty years ago, I got my first job in sobriety. Really worried. Didn't ever ask for a vacation because I was con I was convinced if I would ask for a vacation that they would notice how little I worked <laughs> and would fire me. So I actually did this practice because I, um, it, you know, it was fresh then, and I wrote down, okay, so what? I'm like, well, if I lose my job, I'll never get another job. Okay, so what? Well, I'll wind up on the street homeless because I won't be able to pay the rent. So what? I'll be killed. Okay, so in three, <laughs> in three so what's, I, asking for a vacation, <laughs> was a life-threatening endeavor. <laughs> My life was on the line. I was fucked. So, when we really investigate what's beneath, we pull the rug out again and again from the self-consciousness, and we ask it, and we really don't, don't judge it, just let it tell us where we're going. Eventually, you'll see that beneath all of our self-consciousness is actually a six-year-old terrified 
that everybody else is going to judge us and that we're not going to be okay. And beneath all of our self-consciousness is that six-year-old who really doesn't believe that we're going to be able to survive if we take any risks, if we self-express, if we reach out, if we try to break through any of our fears. That six-year-old in us really feels it's going to be just like it was when we were in second grade and the other kids laughed at us because of something we wore and we felt like it was the end of the world. We've brought that, you know, that inner six-year-old with us into adult life. And the only reason we don't know it is because that now has the ability to speak to us through very convincing, you know, first-line justifications of our fears. But you keep on investigating what's beneath it, and we find... Now, the, good, the nice thing about this technique, by the way, is that if there really is something worth avoiding, you ask three so what's, it's still going to be worth avoiding. I see videos of people bungee jumping. What the fuck? I mean, they're jumping off of a ledge with a rubber band attached to their, 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 you know, their ankles. Maybe you've done it, you want to do it, that's great. I want to have nothing to do with it. I look at this bungee jump, the person diving off. I'm like, I don't want to do that. I, you, could, you know, you could get seriously injured. So what? Well, you could get fucking seriously injured. You're paralyzed. <laughs> like, like, head, like, from down there. I would be, be like, in a, a, a wheelchair for the rest of my life. So what? That's pretty fucking bad. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still convinced. I'm not going to be jumping off of that. So, so it still works, you know, running in front of a car, naked, covered with feces. No, bad idea. Bad idea. Why? So what? Why are I going to get hit by a car? I'm going to be in the hospital with feces and wind up in an institution. Okay, you don't have to go any further. And you were all thinking about that, by the way. Maybe after this I should go out and... My underwear is smeared with feces. I don't know where I come up with this shit. <laughs> All right. <laughs> See, you went to Dharma Bunks tonight. You say, oh, the guy is insane. I'm not going to do this again. I don't know what, what the hell. Um, all right. So, um, oh, here's a wonderful one. Tara Brock talks about. It. I love this one. Um, and that the physicality of confidence. What those means, basically, is um, they did this wonderful study where they found students that were perennially shy, would never talk in classes, would just sort of hide and uh, wouldn't uh, ever raise their hands. And they also isolated a group of students that were very confident in sharing, would raise their hands, talk in class, and had no problem with participating. And they made these two simple adjustments. They told the, the students that were um, shy to sit at the front of their seat, sit forward, their shoulders up, and then to fit with their face to mirror the expressions empathetically of the teacher. So be involved, you know, rather than sit back passively to literally be involved if the, you know, the teacher was showing excitement, get excited, etc. So 
And then they had the students that were naturally or had a tendency to be um, uh, confident, and, uh, could talk and could participate. They told them they had to sit back in their chair and never have a facial expression, just to have a very neutral face. Guess what? Within the course of two weeks, the behaviors of those two groups switched entirely. The students who were the ones that would uh, not participate simply by changing their body language and becoming facially mirroring of the teacher would become engaged in the class. And the students that were told to sit back and become impassive would stop sharing. It turns out that our body creates, as neuroscientists says, our bodies are like the elephants, and consciousness is somewhat like a monkey riding on top of the elephant, thinking it's making all the decisions, but actually the elephant is determining in which direction it moves. And just like that, the body determines so much of the behavior that follows. So simply developing awareness of how we sit, how we hold ourselves, how much we are physically engaged in interactions, rather than pulling back, literally moving into interactions, and learning how to mirror, which means uh, empathizing with the emotions of somebody who's speaking. Just that has an extremely powerful effect. Ajahn Brahm, a wonderful Buddhist monk, talks about subverting Sakaya Didi, which is another word for self-consciousness, and his technique is simply every day wear, do something uh, that you normally wouldn't. Literally get into a habit of breaking routines. Walk a different way to work. If there's that area in your closet of the clothes that your friends talked you into buying and you're like, what the fuck were they on? What the fuck? How did I wind up with this shit? I'm never going to wear that. Wear it. <laughs> wear it. No matter how extreme or weird it is, get into the habit of doing something that pushes us out of the stories that we've constructed about ourselves. The more fluid we create the experience of our lives, the less easy it will be to fall into and believe the self-conscious limitations that we construct for ourselves. So, I hope that there was something of value. In short, remember that the story you've created of yourself is malleable. You can actually write it. You don't have to let your natural tendency to just collect the negative experiences. Ask, so what? Physically engage the body. And break out of those routines as much as you can. Thank you for listening. And those, for those of you who want to leave right now, you can, and we'll have time for questions. If you do leave, if you can, contribute so that we can pay the rent. Uh, that's really helpful, as it's always a challenge. <laughs>